following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to our session entitled Live from AUA 2021 Highlights in Advanced Prostate Cancer. My name is Dr. Stephen Borgian. I'm a professor of urology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm privileged and honored to have the opportunity to moderate our session this afternoon with an esteemed panel of prostate cancer experts. I'm here today with Dr. Adam Keibel, who is the Chief of Urologic Surgery at both the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. In addition, he is the Elliot Carr Cutler Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School, Chairman of the Harvard Program in Urology Residency, and co-leader of the Prostate Cancer Program for the Dana-Farber. He's an author of over 300 peer-reviewed publications, and his areas of research include integration of systemic therapies earlier into patients' disease course for genital urinary malignancies, as well as improving imaging for patients with urologic cancers. We have as well Dr. Stacy Loeb, who is a professor of urology and population health at New York University and the Manhattan Veterans Administration, specializing in prostate cancer. She has more than 350 peer-reviewed publications, currently has grants from the Prostate Cancer Foundation and Department of Defense for her prostate cancer research. She is also chair of the AUA Public Media Committee and hosts the Men's Health Show on SiriusXM Satellite Radio. Our third panelist is Dr. Evan Yu, who is a medical oncologist at the University of Washington Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, where he is a full professor. He also serves as the clinical research director there for genital urinary malignancies and the medical director for clinical research support. He has served for many years on the National Cancer Institute Genital Urinary Cancer Steering Committee and has been co-chair for the NCI Prostate Cancer Task Force for the last three years. A very warm welcome to Drs. Keibel, Loeb, and you. To provide a little bit of background and context for our session here, prostate cancer remains the most commonly diagnosed solid organ malignancy and second leading cause of cancer death among men in the US. While death from prostate cancer typically results from progression to metastatic castration resistant disease, recent years have seen active investigation and exciting development in a variety of prostate cancer disease states, including enhanced imaging modalities, new therapeutic options, and in an expanded understanding of the roles for genetic testing in these patients. Indeed, these represent among the most active areas of investigation in genital urinary cancers, making our topic timely and the opportunity for this discussion today quite exciting. Our goal this afternoon is to discuss several of the key concepts in advanced prostate cancer, which have been the subject of various courses and programs during our annual meeting this year. So let's start by focusing on the AUA Astro SUO guidelines, which were, which were updated in 2020. Dr. Keibel, you're a member of this guidelines panel and were faculty on this morning's course at the AUA 2021 with Dr. Cookson, Dr. Gerard, and Dr. Lawrence. This provided an update on the guidelines. Can you start by framing for us how the new guidelines um, expanded the disease scope of, of prostate cancer from previous iterations of the guidelines? and in particular review the structure of the new guidelines compared to what was previously the index patient um, organization. Yes, so uh, when the guidelines were first developed, uh, think about 15 years ago, uh, it was right after the introduction of docetaxel followed by uh, multiple trials that basically framed the treatment of disease around whether the patient had received docetaxel or not. Obviously, uh, huge changes have happened over the past uh, 15 years since, that, since the introduction of docetaxel, uh, and the movement of our uh, treatment has moved earlier in the disease process. So we needed a guideline that reflected the fact that we were treating patients earlier, that our definition of advanced prostate cancer had changed, 
and that we uh, no longer defined whether a patient should get treatment or not on whether the fact they uh, had received dose attacks. So the, the current guideline uh, breaks it essentially into three groups of patients. It's not index patients, but three groups of patients. The first are patients who have biochemical recurrence without metastatic disease. The second is metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. The third is non-metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. And the fourth is metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. And for each of these, we tried to identify the uh, treatments where there was uh, level three evidence, uh, excuse me, level one evidence, phase three data that these actually would benefit our patients. So, so let's then start with the disease state of biochemical recurrence in patients without metastatic disease. So, so Dr. Cabell, can you speak to how the guidelines framed recommendations regarding imaging in these patients who now have a detectable PSA um, following surgical resection of the prostate? What, what do we do about imaging? There's been some discussion about yield of conventional imaging, roles of novel imaging. How do the guidelines inform us here? Well, the guidelines uh, are, are, in this case, our are, are field is advancing so rapidly. I think the guideline is about to be, if not think, it will be updated shortly to incorporate PSMA. So basically it could just use bone scan, which isn't very useful, conventional cross-sectional imaging, which isn't uh, particularly useful, and then uh, flucyclovine PET, which is useful, but you have to wait until the PSA gets closer to two before it becomes uh, useful at defect detecting metastatic disease. So uh, the guideline basically says you can image patients, but it's, the yield is gonna be low. And the feeling is you shouldn't treat these patients unless they actually have metastatic disease. So someone with a rise in PSA really shouldn't be treated. We do open the door to intermittent androgen deprivation, but only uh, it's not a, it, there's no level one evidence that says that's the direction we should go. Now, PSMA is clearly about to, to, to dramatically change our management of these patients. Uh, this imaging modality is, uh, has been FDA approved, will be in the guidelines shortly, and lowers that threshold to about 0.5 uh, nanograms per ml for a detectable PSA. So uh, I think it's going to be it's going to change change our change our uh, our management of these patients dramatically in ways that uh, we anticipate and ways that we don't anticipate yet. So 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 just to that point, since the the iteration of the guidelines was put out, the PSMA trial data has been released. Do you see PSMA emerging as the preferred among the new novel imaging modalities? Yeah, I, I do. I think the the fact that it detects metastatic disease at a lower threshold, I think, will change things dramatically. I think the fact that uh, trials like uh, uh, that looked at lutetium, which we may be talking about later, uh, focus on uh, patients that have PET avid, met avid metastatic disease. Trials like Oriel, which uh, deliver focal targeted radiation uh, on uh, metastatic cancer uh, and, and keeping the patients off hormone therapy for a longer period of time. I mean, the ability to develop, to identify metastatic disease a little earlier, uh, I think can, uh, can improve our care. It is important, and I'm curious what the other panelists will think about this, our definition of higher volume disease versus lower volume disease is based on conventional imaging, conventional bone scan. Uh, and uh, I think we're gonna have to sort out how we take the PET data and apply it to whether or not patients should get uh, docetaxel, uh, abiraterone, or, or, or local radiation therapy for patients that have higher low volume metastatic disease. So, so, so Jen, just to, Follow up with one, one additional question about the imaging here. Um, you know, even after FDA approval and in, in, in improved data to inform us, um, the issues of cost, the issues of access are going to remain um, quite germane to, to this disease state. So, so I would envision that we're going to be pushed to the question, you know, how will these studies change management? And for example, in patients who've received maximal local therapy, surgery and, and salvage radiotherapy have biochemical recurrence. Um, how do we, you know, where do you see the, the role of, of next generation imaging guiding therapy in, a, in patients such as that? And do you see that being a, a disease space where that imaging is going to be used? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I would say absolutely. I mean, I think if a patient doesn't have metastatic disease, it does not make any sense to treat them with any sort of systemic agent or focal radiation. Uh, where to the metastatic deposit. Whereas if they do, I think we're going to improve our care of patients by identifying the metastatic disease a little earlier, potentially radiating the metastatic disease, and potentially uh, treating them with earlier earlier uh, hormonal therapy, such as abiraterone or enzalutamide, darlutamide or apalutamide. 
again, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head in saying we're going to have to demonstrate benefit. Uh, I mean, the closest trial I've seen that's demonstrated benefit in this space is the Oriole trial. Uh, you know, that now that now it's been approved, I think we're going to see a lot of trials that attempt to demonstrate that 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 benefit, both in Excellent. terms of both in terms of improved outcome, uh, but also potentially potentially a, a, a decrease in cost. I say potentially because every time we introduce a new modality, it does not seem to increase decrease cost. It mostly seems to increase it. So just to um, go off script a second here, Dr. Yu, if I if we could to to the point Dr. Kaibel raised that the majority of the therapeutic approvals have been based on conventional imaging. Um, as we have the plethora of riches, so to speak, or um, whatnot, how do you see um, treatment in conventional imaging negative, novel imaging positive, with potentially you know, toxic systemic therapies? What, what do we, what's gonna be the place that do we need new trials to define each of these new agents in, PSMA positive patients or how we do that? I think it's an outstanding question. I think the field is wide open. I think when I see a patient in this situation, I counsel them on all the possibilities and the range is broad. The range is from observation to treatment intensification with systemic therapies and oligometastatic directed therapy. Um, none of this is for certain at this point in time, but if you really think about it, for the longest time for biochemically recurrent prostate cancer, there has been no level one evidence either. So it's not like we knew what to do and now we don't know what to do. We've never known exactly what to do. Uh, <laughs> so yes, it creates a greater quandary, uh, but it's not a greater quandary than let's say we had before. It creates an opportunity for us to do more randomized controlled trials and probably five to 10 years from now, we'll have a good answer. But at this point in time, it's wide open, and I think the key is, is to discuss all the options with the patient. Yes. So with great power comes great responsibility. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Absolutely. We need to do the trials, and there are many planned. Uh, fortunately, through the NCTN mechanism, there are many planned, and there will be others, I'm sure, eventually industry-sponsored trials. So, so then as we walk through the, the disease states that Dr. Kybel outlined, the guidelines have, have, have put forth for us, then you know, the next sort of set that, that we have advice on is the patients with non-metastatic or M0 CRPC, which has really evolved over the last several years as the new therapeutic options uh, have evolved in this disease space. So Dr. Yu, can you outline for us what are the approved therapeutic strategies for patients with M0 CRPC and, and what are the mechanism of action for these agents? Yes, there's three uh, approved, regulatory approved options, and all three are androgen receptor pure antagonists. Uh, all three of these agents also improve metastasis free survival and overall survival in randomized phase three studies. And they include apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide. Uh, apalutamide and enzalutamide being structurally more similar, darolutamide being biochemically structurally a bit different. But I'll say that generally these are all three agents that bind to the androgen receptor, bind irreversibly, inhibit translocation in the nucleus, and essentially completely inhibit uh, binding to chromatin, uh, recruitment of cofactors. So they're all outstanding and incredibly efficacious. Uh, the, I think the key is when you look at the three randomized controlled trials, we're not supposed to do this. I think we all say this all the time. We're not supposed to compare across randomized phase three controlled trials, uh, but really the efficacy, you cannot discern an efficacy difference. So sometimes people look at side effect profiles and there it's been talked about how darolutamide might cross the blood brain barrier less. And I will say that, again, you can't compare side effect profiles from one randomized phase three trial to another, but I do look at for the therapeutic arm versus the placebo within the trial. And there might be less uh, side effects in that per, per se, when you look at it that way between darolutamide and the control arms in the randomized phase three trials. But those are subtle. And I think it's hard to necessarily uh, say one way or another, I think all three are outstanding options that add efficacy benefit and all three should be on the table for consideration. So then, so, so, so is it then if you have the patient in clinic with M0 CRPC and you have three, you know, buttons you can click to order, um, do you incorporate patient factors? 
you, you mentioned the blood-brain barrier issue. Is it a history of falls? Is it uh, fatigue? I mean, how, how do you make the call? Um, understanding that you can't compare, certainly efficacy at least, across randomized trials, what are the factors that you use in your practice to, to help select? Yeah, great question. So uh, as I say, usually we look at efficacy as the top factor, but in this instance, I think it's essentially, you know, very, very similar. So uh, you can't use that as a factor. The second thing I look at is adverse events and comorbidities. And I agree, patients that maybe uh, have had a history of seizures, uh, have had a history of falls or fractures, uh, are uh, perhaps uh, more frail. Uh, those are patients that, uh, yeah, I'm going to take a look more at that. The randomized controlled trial Aramis trial with darolutamide did not per se exclude patients with a history of seizures or at high risk of seizures like the other randomized phase three trials did. So that's one helpful thing in discerning between the trials. And that might be a patient population that, yes, I, I might lean more towards darolutamide. But there are other subtle toxicity differences uh, between these agents as well. For instance, apalutamide uh, tends to cause more rash. And so that's one, uh, another discerning feature. Drug interactions are another discerning feature. And of course, uh, financial toxicity, not just to the healthcare system, but to the individual patient, their co-pays. Uh, so that being said and done, the patient copay support programs, patient assistance programs from the different companies that make these agents become very, very important. So, so kind of stepping back from the question of, of which agent to choose, how about the broader question of when to treat in M0 CRPC at all? Um, because again, these are patients without documented metastatic disease. Um, are there patients who have a, a rising PSA in this setting that you might not treat at all yet? Um, and if so, how do you make that call? Absolutely. Uh, I think the uh, one easiest way to discern a patient population I might just observe is if you look at the eligibility criteria for those three randomized controlled trials, they all included kind of intermediate and high risk patients, patients with PSA doubling times less than 10 months. So if I see a patient with a very long PSA doubling time, let's say, you know, a year or more, that's probably somebody I'm just going to observe. Of course, there are unique situations that the patient's extremely young, the PSA is very high. Sure, I might treat that patient earlier, uh, but if the patient has other comorbidities and has a long PSA doubling time, uh, is more frail, I think observation is very, very, very appropriate. Stephen, can I leap in and say something there? I think also, these patients really shouldn't be put on hormone therapy. I mean, I, I won't say I've never put anyone on intermittent hormone therapy. I do, uh, but I, I try to keep the patient off of it. So this should be a vanishing uh, uh, group of patients. And, and the ones that need to go on to the next generation are the ones who had really bad cancer to begin with. So you don't just go with what's going on now. You can look back in time and see, what was going on when they were actually put on the hormone therapy to begin with? So, so uh, to, to that point about perhaps this becoming a vanishing disease state, um, I'll, I'll push you a bit, Dr. Kreibel. What about imaging here now? So um, now we have, um, you know, again, three trials with agents for no metastatic disease on conventional imaging. If we get next generation imaging and we find metastatic disease, do they become ineligible for these therapies that, that were approved in? So, so how do we do, what do we think about when we think about next generation imaging in M0 CRPC? So, I, well, first of all, I'm not sure it's approved in that state yet, uh, but uh, it, it probably will be. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the key issue uh, is uh, what, what we have in our armamentarium and, the, and it's very similar drugs. I mean, Yes, aplutamide and darlutamide have not been approved in this in this in this area, but uh, enzalutamide certainly has. So enzalutamide is approved for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer and non now non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And as Evan highlighted quite nicely, I think all of us feel that the, from an efficacy standpoint, darlutamide and aplutamide you know function the same way. So I, I think a little bit of it will be driven by the payers, and if the payers are willing to give uh, allow us to give aplutamide and darlutamide in that space. But, but I think it's a little bit academic. I mean, the, these, these, these tracers are going to be there. We're going to have a better idea of where the metastatic disease is. Uh, and uh, I, I think that we'll just be pulling our drugs a little sooner in the whole process, which is, I think, beneficial to our patients. Well, that's, yeah. And I think it's, to your point about the vanishing, I think what may have historically been M0 CRPC may be found to be early oligometastatic 
as we image better. Right. We'll see. Can I jump in on this topic? Uh, Please. I'm gonna, yeah, I just want to say that, you know, absolutely, this is going to happen. People are going to get next generation PET imaging and find metastatic disease there. But at the end of the day, if they don't have disease via traditional imaging, they still would have fit the eligibility criteria for those three randomized control trials. And I still think that all those options should be on the table. Additionally, I want to rewind it to one step further back, which is, you know, a, a simple thing that we all learned back in medical school is don't get a test unless you know what you're going to do with the results of the test. So if you already have great treatment options available for you that add survival benefit, do we need to get that test there? Do we yeah, need to get next generation pet imaging there? Yeah, that's that. That was just why I was sort of um, pushing a bit on that on that question. So, so. But, but can I say one other thing? I would argue if you're going to maybe use focal radiation of these metastatic deposits and keep the patients off the hormone therapy for a little while longer, potentially. I'm not advocating that. Saying potentially in the future we may it, it may improve our outcome for patients. Yeah, we'll and need I, to generate data for that. And I think that would be the great, as you mentioned, Oriel, you know, sort of trial-driven um, PSMA-guided oligometastatic directed therapy would be a, a, a home runway to address exactly that, that question, Dr. Pebble. So let's then move from M0 CRPC to now transition to the patient with hormone-sensitive metastatic newly diagnosed disease. So here now, interestingly, the guidelines, Dr. Pebble, introduce a potential role for local therapy with prostate radiation in hormone-sensitive metastatic um, prostate cancer. Um, so can you discuss which patients um, you would recommend this for? You know, how do the guidelines look at these data and, and you know, what do we do about this? So I, I think we have to thank uh, Stampede once again, uh, as well as the HORADS trial for designing a trial that they, they, they thought very carefully when they designed a randomized trial where they define the extent of metastatic disease according to the charter criteria. So it's the same as the charter criteria, which is four metastatic, I'm gonna hopefully get this right, four uh, sites of metastatic disease or more, one of which has to be outside of the pelvis or the axial skeleton or visceral metastatic disease. And that makes somebody high volume, and I know we're not talking about radiation, we're talking about chartered uh, and, and latitude, but those are the patients that deserve uh, uh, systemic, disease, systemic treatment. On the lower end, there's less data that the patients benefit from systemic treatment, and both HORADS and Stampede did randomized trials where the patients got radiation plus the standard of care versus the standard of care, and the patients, which was androgen deprivation, and the patients who got the radiation actually uh, uh, did better. And, and some people have criticized Stampede for sub-set uh, uh, sub, uh, analysis, like it wasn't the whole population, but that was their, that, that's what they had determined to do a priori before they even did the trial. And so uh, I think it was well within the statistical framework of what we would consider a valid outcome. So if I see somebody who has micrometastatic disease, not, uh, not a cult, we can see it, but it's very low volume disease. Those patients will live longer if you give them radiation. So you should go ahead and at least seriously consider it. So it, it, again, because it's Sunday and there's football, I'm going to audible here and just Ask two further questions, if I could, to you, Dr. Kreibel. One is, in that patient with low-volume metastatic disease that you're going to advise radiation to the prostate for, do you treat the sites of metastatic disease as well with local therapy? Yeah, we, we, we have done that. I, I think in most cases now, I, I think this is, again, an audible, uh, depending on what it looks like is going on with the patient. But it's very common for us to give local radiation, put the patient on something like abiraterone, uh, for a short period of time and uh, radiate some of the micrometastatic deposits. So uh, I'd be curious if that's what uh, Evan is doing as well, but that's sort of what we've been doing in a lot of our patients. Evan is enrolling them on a clinical trial because I don't, I don't think I know exactly what the exact right thing to do is yet. So uh, fortunately we have trials ongoing like SWOG 1802, which, you know, allows for local therapy to the prostate, either surgery or radiation, and it also allows for oligometastatic therapy uh, to the uh, metastases. But, you know, of course, there are always patients that are off trial that sometimes will embark on these endeavors, but I wouldn't say that I'm confident enough in the data that exists yet that that is 
the definitive correct thing to do yet. Can I, can I comment one thing on that? So mm -hmm. there are trials out there in which they've tried to add additional therapy and that the, actually the patients have done worse. The one I think in back of my mind is radium 223 adding abiraterone. So they want to treat the visceral metastatic disease. So people had the bright idea, let's just give them abiraterone. And they gave them abiraterone. And in the randomized trial, those patients did worse when they had both therapies, more skill related events, and uh, we're more likely to actually die. So I wanna, even though I was saying that we do some of this off, off the books, I, I wanna echo what Evan said is that you really need the proof before you're giving patients these potentially toxic treatments. So, so then, so talking about local therapy now, kind of thinking about systemic therapy here in, in hormone sensitive metastatic disease, Dr. You, you were part of an instructional course earlier today that, that provided a case-based approach with care team models. Um, and now that we have several therapeutic strategies that are approved for hormone sensitive disease and, and maybe perhaps broadly classifying them as chemotherapy and androgen pathway directed therapies, um, how do you advise treatment choice for initial therapy between these classes of agents? Um, you know, and, and, and how do you also advise you know, us as urologists um, the three of us in terms of, you know, working to get, you know, where do we, how do we bring a team in? You know, when we make a transition, how do we do that? So two part question, how do you decide between classes of medications? And then how do we work? You know, when do we make that call and, 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 and collaborative work? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. I think similar to what I mentioned earlier with M0 or non-metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer, there's outstanding efficacy with four different agents in this situation. And I cannot discern efficacy being better from one versus another. The one thing that I can discern is just that the charted trial with docetaxel, six cycles of docetaxel uh, was for patients with high volume disease. I won't reiterate those criteria because Adam actually nailed them right on the head there. Uh, those are the exact criteria for high volume disease. And in those patients, I will discuss docetaxel, abiraterone, enzalutamide, and apalutamide. Uh, for those that do not meet those criteria for high volume disease, I will just discuss abiraterone, enzalutamide, and apalutamide. And how I discern between the different hormonal agents really comes down to the issues I talked about before, comorbidities, uh, costs, all those sorts of issues, looking at the side effect profiles, and of course, financial toxicity issues. Yeah, but I will say one thing is interestingly, one would say that in the high volume disease state, uh, you, if you're discerning between chemotherapy versus a novel AR targeted therapy, people will say, well, geez, a novel AR targeted therapy sure seems easier and less toxic. Surprisingly, when you talk to patients about it, and I find in my practice, it's about 50-50, uh, select the AR targeted pathway inhibitor versus docetaxel, because there's one benefit to the six cycles of docetaxel, you're done with it after six cycles, and you don't have to take chronic therapy that maybe some patients have very high copays for. So to move on to your second question about, you know, sharing these patients and working together uh, with urology, you know, we're fortunate at our center, we have a multidisciplinary uh, clinic for prostate cancer, and these patients are generally all seeing in that multidisciplinary clinic. So we're all there talking about everything from these treatment therapy intensifications with systemic therapy to local radiation as per stampede, what uh, Dr. Keibel just mentioned, uh, and also even urologic treatment and surgery with these patients or patients that might be eligible for the SWOG-1802 trial I talked about. So we've got it kind of worked out nicely. I think this is a disease state where we definitely need to communicate and work together with. And so, of course, not everyone has a multidisciplinary clinic. We're a little bit spoiled with that, but I think it works great. And it also ties in nicely because there's a lot of discussions around next generation PET imaging and genetics. And I think that's another key issue that I'm sure you're going to ask some questions about are the genetic components and discussions and all the different studies we have ongoing there. So it works well in that situation in a multidisciplinary clinic. Well, that was the perfect lead in to our next topic that I wanted to discuss. So that was perfect, Dr. Yu. Thank you, Dr. Loeb. On Friday, um, Dr. Morgan presented an instructional course focusing on genetic testing in prostate cancer. And then Dr. Joseph Wagner led a course during the AUA kickoff weekend in May entitled Incorporating Genomic Testing into Your Prostate Cancer Practice. Um, you know, as Dr. Yu mentioned, it's a, it's a critical topic. Um, I think it's one that may be largely not completely understood by people in practice every day. So 
if we can, let's just start with some common definitions of terminology here. Um, can you speak to the terms um, germline testing, somatic testing, um, you know, how we obtain these indications for, for the, well, well how, let's start with that. Just basic terminology and put us on a page here. Yes, thank you so much. And that's such a great question. And I think there is just so much confusion around this. So when we're talking about germline, this is talking about genes that are inherited in families. You can test them at any age. They're in our healthy cells in the body. When we're talking about somatic testing, we're talking about testing of the tumor. And you know, it's interesting, but we just published a survey of urologists asking which of the following tests test for hereditary mutations that can be passed in families. And some of the answers selected were things like oncotype or prolaris, which are not testing the germline. So tests like Invitae, for example, is a germline test. So it is very important to distinguish these just because they're both important and have, you know, complementary but different roles in the management. And so when we think about that, just to get in, into the weeds a bit, when we do germline testing, that is done most commonly how? Do we, what are the most common ways that we do germline testing? And then you, somatic is biopsy of is there a preference, primary site, metastatic site? Yeah, so that's a great question. So for germline testing, uh, we mostly just send a kit to the patient's house and they spit. Uh, it can also be done through a blood test. For the somatic testing, you know, that can depend a lot on the clinical scenario. And in our case, you know, typically what tissue is available. Uh, if the primary tumor tissue is available, if there's metastatic biopsy tissue available, also uh, liquid biopsies. So there's a whole lot of options in terms of the somatic testing and um, you know what is optimal can vary depending on the clinical scenario. But the germline is pretty easy. Uh, people are like, oh, just a spit sample. Yeah. So, so what are, so, so I have some interesting thoughts about that somatic thing, but I, I, I before I pepper Dr. Yu, I want to push you a little bit further. So, so in terms of the germline testing, newly diagnosed uh, prostate cancer patient, um, what are the criteria to, to, that we should be using to determine if this patient should have germline testing performed in them? Yes. So that's a great question. And um, it can be complicated, but uh, the really, let's just make it very simple. So first and foremost, and importantly, uh, all patients should be offered germline testing, so period. So that one is easy. And in our survey, some urologists were still using family history criteria, even if the patient had metastatic prostate cancer, and that's really not necessary. So if you have high risk, localized or metastatic disease, you qualify and you don't need to have any family history portfolio at all. Now, if you don't, if you do have localized disease that's low risk or intermediate risk, you could still qualify if you do have a concerning family. Now, for example, early diagnosed breast cancer at age less than 50, ovarian or pancreatic cancer, other uh, family members with lethal prostate cancer, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, cribiform histology. So, the other factors come into play if you do not meet the staging criteria for germline testing. And the good news is we've actually been working on a project of testing an app that can help doctors and patients to ascertain who qualifies. So the app was actually developed by Veda Geary and we did usability testing and modified it as part of a PCF challenge award. So it's called the Helix app and hopefully it'll be available publicly later this year and just can, you know, help out with some of the more. That would be phenomenal, useful in clinic on an everyday thing. Is there a preferred platform that you use for germline? Is there a preferred one, one or another that you utilize most often or would, would recommend? I mean, I think there's a lot of you know, because there's definitely pluses and minuses as to how many genes you test. 
you could specifically test only the genes that uh, in terms of prostate cancer management, but that misses a lot of other potential and also more expanded panels. We're uh, currently having all of our patients enrolling in a protocol. We're in the middle of a randomized trial comparing uh, pre-test genetic counseling using the traditional pathway versus pre-test genetic counseling through an interactive web platform. And the goal of that is really just to reduce the burden on genetic counselors and to expedite germline testing for the large number of patients with prostate cancer. So for that study, we have like a custom 51 gene in Vitae panel that all of our patients are getting. But you know that's not necessarily the best or the ideal because the more you test, then the more variants of uncertain significance that you receive. So there's just, I would say, choose with a genetic counselor or a provider. So, so that, Matt, that just to expand on your last point there about the genetic counselor, um, you know, how do we, how do we think about when we engage them? And, um, you know, you know, there's lots of questions that get brought up with, with genetic testing, um, you know, for in the, you know, localized setting, um, for the patient who asks, why are we getting this test? And then can you speak to sort of some of the considerations um, and implications of obtaining you know, genetic testing for the patient, for the family members? Um, and and do, do we have those discussions? Do we have genetic counselors with consultation have those discussions? You know, how, how do we operationalize this? Question, I hope that my inter helpful. I'm, I'm sorry if I lost the connection. I hopefully I'm back now, but genetic counselors are super helpful. And, you know, unless you are very well versed in these things, I think uh, working very closely with them is essential. I'll give you even a recent anecdote from my own practice. You know, we had a patient where the results came back with a variant of uncertain significance, but if you look it up in the ClinVar registry, some other labs qualify that as a pathogenic variant. If it is a pathogenic variant, it had implications for female relatives, and all of this is uh, really complex. So I think it's helpful to have genetic counselors on the team who can uh, look into these deep issues and, you know, also assist with cascade testing for family members. Yeah, certainly something that comes with a number of other questions um, in terms of legal protections and family, you know, other, other family issues. So I appreciate that, that discussion. And I guess as a, as a, a, a last bit of pushing on genetics here, um, what do we, what do we fundamentally say to that patient who says, why? I know I have prostate cancer. Why do I need to get this genetic test? How, if we, how, how do we answer that in clinic? Yeah, well, it's really important for management of metastatic prostate cancer because it can actually change the treatment that they receive. And even if the patient doesn't have metastatic prostate cancer now, if they later have a recurrence of their cancer, but it can also affect cancer screening and that includes other cancers for that patient and their family members. So then let's let's move, that, that, that's incredibly helpful. Thank you, Dr. Loeb. So let's now focus on metastatic CRPC, which as Dr. Keibel said, was sort of the fourth of the four disease states that the guidelines handled. Um, so, so, so Dr. Loeb, in patients with metastatic CRPC, um, do they need both germline and somatic testing? And I'm going to ping Dr. Yu on this as well, because I'd like to hear from both of you, but, but if you could take this first. So, so if you have your germline testing, for example, and you follow the guidelines that you outlined, um, and maybe the germline testing showed a mutation, do you need more somatic testing later? How do we think about those two in the MCRPC patient? Yes, yes, no, absolutely. Yes, I would recommend both. And as I said earlier, you know, I think that the information is complementary. You could also ask the question in the other direction. You know, if the patient already had somatic testing, 
did they still need germline testing? And, you know, I would say yes, also, you know, because then you're going to find out for their family members, whether there's inherited mutations and what is their general cancer screening recommendation. In either direction, my answer is yes, but I'm happy to share the question with the other members of the panel. Yeah, so Dr. Yu, I can imagine this comes up. Um, you know, what do, you, what do we do? We, we've gotten, as Dr. Loeb said, we followed our recommendations, but now we have MCRPC. Um, do we go after a site? What do we do? We, do you like bone? Do you like soft tissue? Lots of debates about this. Um, what are your thoughts about obtaining somatic tumor tissue in the MCRPC patient? Well, uh, I agree completely uh, about everything that's been said. I definitely germline test everyone with metastatic disease, whether castration sensitive or resistant. But I believe for castration resistant prostate cancer, at some point in time, somatic testing needs to be done. And uh, I think there's still a lot to be learned out there about somatic testing from tissue, archival tissue versus a fresh metastatic biopsy versus circulating tumor DNA. Uh, I'm just going to touch base on a few things. I think what we know now is, is, is that uh, through multiple different studies is, is that uh, most of the really important alterations, let's say like BRCA2, they tend to occur early and they tend to be truncal events that occur early and are impactful. And so probably for a patient like that, that BRCA2 alteration, probably detectable from archival tissue many, many years back. That may not be the case for every gene. And that may not be the case for determining uh, whether both alleles are inactivated or whether it's a monolelic inactivation. And I think that can be important as well. I think for a gene like BRCA2, which is of utmost importance and clearly a driver of prostate cancer, when you see it, it probably occurred early. And usually there's loss of heterogosis, both alleles are altered. But for some of the other genes, whether it's monolelic or biallelic, whether that's impactful or not, whether it really predicts for a response department inhibitor, I think all that is still yet unknown. So I think, you know, there's no definitive right or wrong answer. I can tell you what I do is I do germline tests, everyone with metastatic disease, and somewhere along the lines of metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, certainly by the time they've received at least one potent AR-targeted therapy and progressed, I will somatic test as well to get more uh, recent information, whether that's through circulating tumor DNA or recent uh, or more recent biopsy, just to get more recent information and also to assess whether there's biallelic alteration or not. But if I can just ask, so so in that patient you described, if you'd gotten the germline testing initially and it showed BRCA2 mutation, you you would still then get the somatic later to... I would. I would, and mostly just to convince myself that there's loss of heterozygosity, that this really is a driver. And that's not to say that somebody with a BRCA2 monoallelic alteration that didn't lose the second allele at some point in time, that, that they definitely won't respond to a PARP inhibitor. But I can tell you for a lot of other genes out there that you really need, are going to need biallelic inactivation. So in your exact instance that you're talking about, your exact situation, you probably could get away just with that germline BRCA2 in that situation. But I think there's other things to look for. You know, it's not just all about BRCA2 and PARP inhibition. You're not going to have any information on the mismatch repair genes and microsatellite instability and hypermutation without doing next generation sequencing, somatic next generation sequencing. So there are other reasons, and maybe even more as time goes on, to be doing that somatic next generation sequencing, not just relying on the germline testing. So that's very helpful, thank you. So, so then let's, let's kind of keep you on the, on the hot seat here and, and, and step backwards in terms of, you know, just the way we, we had you go through the classes of medications for metastatic hormone sensitive disease, um, can you walk through what factors go into the selection of first-line therapy for now the MCRPC patient that you're seeing in clinic? Now, I always say now that this is one of the biggest unmet needs, not because there aren't treatment options, there certainly are, but because we don't really know what the best treatment options are. And so much of the original data for first-line MCRPC was devised in an era prior to us using these treatment therapies earlier. 
you know, in the M0 CRPC disease state, in the castration sensitive disease state. So one of the most important factors I have for a patient with MCRPC is just to ask myself, what did they have before? You know, if they did they have ADT and docetaxel for a high volume metastatic castration sensitive disease? Did they have ADT and abiraterone now they're pro uh, progressing? Because obviously it makes sense. And this is a theory that spans through all of oncology is changing mechanism of action is usually a smart thing to do rather than kind of pressing on the same pressure point one right after the next. So that's going to be an important factor. Another important factor to look at is how long did they respond to prior ADT and or whatever treatment intensification they may or may not have received, right? Is that person apt to have more hormonally sensitive disease or apt to be driven by other mechanisms? So, uh, you know, other factors, um, how are they progressing? Is this somebody with a slow PSA rise or is their PSA shooting up quickly? Or could they not even have a PSA rise and brand new rapidly progressive visceral metastases, liver metastases, in which case then I might want to biopsy them and see if they whether they have neuroendocrine components. So there are so many factors that go into this, but I would say looking at, you know, how the patient's progressing, what prior treatments did they receive? How long did they respond to prior hormonal therapies? These are all going to be important in selection of your next line therapy, whatever that may be. And there's a lot of options, right? From Cepulos-LT to abiraterone to enzalutamide to docetaxel. Uh, some people may have had docetaxel already, might need cabazitaxel there if they have rapid visceral crisis. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of factors. So that actually is a great segue to, to where I was going to go to Dr. Keibel and ask, when would you consider Sepulius LT and when would you consider radium in, in, in patients with MCRPC? Uh, I mean, CIPT needs to be given solely in patients that have asymptomatic disease. Uh, so uh, it is a group of patients that, that, that there's not as much urgency around the treatment. You want to do it early where their immune system is still working fairly well, because uh, there's good data out there that the earlier treatment re uh, results in a, in, a, in a better outcome. I mean, the main problem we've had with this treatment is there's not a PSA response, which is ironic considering we all recognize that the PSA response is not important. But the problem is the patient's PSA doesn't change and the patient feels like they haven't had efficacious therapy, so it rapidly progresses to another treatment. This, the data is strong that there's an overall survival advantage. Radium-223 is, uh, is, that's more for the symptomatic patient, okay? The patient who has bone pain. Uh, they can't have visceral metastatic disease. And as I outlined earlier, if they do have visceral metastatic disease, you can't just add in another therapy uh, and, and say, okay, I've taken care of the bone mets with radium and I've taken care of the visceral mets with, with some other treatment because potentially or not potentially that interaction appears to result in more fractures, uh, which is bad and, and actually an increased risk of death. So the radium patient is some either pre or post docetaxel castrate resistant prostate cancer uh, who has, uh, has, uh, has, has a symptomatic metastatic disease. And there's one you don't have in there, which is uh, you know new, which is the lutetium story. It goes back to the PET uh, uh, story. Uh, you know, if somebody has a positive PET, uh, I think we're going to increasingly be seeing patients using lutetium, uh, excuse me, physicians using lutetium in that space. That's new data. Uh, I do not have a lot of experience with it, uh, but I think that's going to capture an awful lot of uh, the patients that have uh, metastatic bone disease in a positive PET scan. So, so, so on the line of bone, bone disease, um, you know, Dr. Kribel, how, how and when do you begin bone health monitoring, evaluation, uh, preventative therapies in, in advanced prostate cancer period. I know we were kind of in the MCRPC state, but stepping back to the, the overall prostate cancer patient, um, not to be overlooked. Um, so I think, I think obviously you need to worry about any old man or a mature man, I guess I shouldn't say old man, that they're at increased risk. But clearly once they're put on androgen deprivation therapy, you really need to uh, uh, seriously worry about fractures. I mean, it's up to 20 to 50% of patients will eventually get fractures. The duration of treatment, if you uh, take somebody who's on it for a few months versus an orchiectomy, you see a clear relationship with the longer the duration, the more likely they are to have a fracture. Uh, yeah, I get my imaging a deck scan about once every, uh, 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 once every year. It's very simple. The patient's coming in. It's easy to get. Uh, I think you need uh, that baseline, though, is important. Uh, you put everybody, at least uh, I put everybody on calcium and vitamin D. And the recommendation is actually for everybody over the age of 50, irrespective of whether they have 
but uh, prostate cancer or not, that they should be taking calcium and vitamin D. So, you know, people like more mature individuals like myself or should already be on it. We really need to encourage the patient uh, who has metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer or even hormone sensitive prostate cancer who will be on uh, probably androgen deprivation eventually to start taking vitamin D and calcium. So, so in both the management of bone health and then in sort of the general kind of as the patient progresses in the, the, the direct cancer therapy, you know, how, how do you think about transitions in care um, and again, it's highly practice specific recognizing depending on expertise and resources and whatnot, but, you know, engaging colleagues for endocrinology and bone health, medical oncology for the next systemic therapy, you know, how do you, again, operationalize that sort of thing? So I, I think if you don't feel comfortable managing this, you can send endocrinology. That, that's not really been part of my practice. I feel like we can manage that well with, with our medical oncology colleagues. Uh, as I think Evan highlighted quite nicely, multi-D care is good for patient care. And so we involve our medical oncologists extremely early in the care of the patient. Uh, I think that uh, they bring a slight, slightly different perspective, which is valuable to the patient. Uh, and, and I think the patient benefits from it. By benefit, I mean they're more likely to live longer and it, and it uh, and allows them to be enrolled in clinical trials. So I, our, our, our medical oncology colleagues are already involved in, in the vast majority of these patients now. This is a dramatic difference from when I first went to practice 15 to 20 years ago, uh, but they are. And uh, you know they, they assist us in advising the patient about whether, mostly when they should go on denosumab or zolindronic acid. Uh, so, the urologist generally controlling the calcium and the vitamin D and the monitoring. So, Doctor, you about the the, the denosumab and zoledronic acid that Doctor Kaibel mentioned. Um, can you talk a little bit about the mechanism of action of those two two agents, and then explain? You know, do you have a preferred therapy uh, for for patients now with MCRPC um, who who you're thinking about about you know preventing skeletal-related events? Yeah, so, you know, denosumab is a rank ligand inhibitor. Uh, Zoledronic acid is an osteoclast inhibitor. Uh, I think, you know, denosumab is an agent that it's very clear that you need to give it more frequently. Uh, Zoledronic acid has been shown over time to have long-lasting effects in the bone, and that's why there are non-inferiority trials that have been done across uh, prostate, breast, and other solid tumors that show that you probably can give it just quarterly and get a similar outcome as giving it monthly. That being said and done, there's randomized controlled data that shows that denosumab is superior to zoledronic acid for prevention of skeletal related events in patients with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer and bone metastases. But that being said and done, if you look at all the guidelines, they'll generally list them all as being fine and sufficient. And I think part of the reason for that is, is that you know those skeletal related events, most of those were not symptomatic events, most of those were radiographic events. So what the field is moving more towards is looking at symptomatic skeletal events. And I think it'd be hard to say that one is better than the other than another uh, in that situation. So I think they're both on the table. There are advantages uh, to each one. Uh, you know, obviously denosumab, you don't have to worry about renal dysfunction. You don't have as much as that initial kind of flu syndrome you get with zoledronic acid the first time you get it, but then that goes away over time. Um, but of course, it is more frequent administration. With osteonecrosis of the jaw, it can happen with either of the agents, but it happens usually with prolonged administration. And I think the word of caution that I would give is it's very clear that there's supportive data for bone metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. For castration-sensitive prostate cancer, there was a CALGB trial, did not show benefit of, uh, in regards to skeletal-related events for zoledronic acid. And again, in the stampede study, there, was, there were arms with zoledronic acid that didn't show any survival benefits. So again, just because you have bone mets, for most cancers, there's data to use these agents. But in prostate cancer, it really is for metastatic castration-resistant prostate and, cancer. And, and how about the osteonecrosis of the jaw? So, mm -hmm. so what, do, what, what steps should we be counseling patients to prevent this when you're mm -hmm. going to initiate one of these therapies? And then if, unfortunately, this develops, um, how, do you, how do you manage? Yeah. So I talked to the patients right up front about the risk being very low, maybe in the 1%, 2% range at most, but usually less. Uh, of course, the risk gets higher if you use it for a longer period of time. 
So I'm not one that uses these things right away. I'm very thoughtful about when I introduce it and how long I use it. Because in this day and age, the good news is prostate cancer patients are living a long, long time. So I actually don't want my patients on these bone protective agents for, you know, eight years. Now, because I don't think there's good data to go that long and then you get higher risk. So I counsel my patient on great dental care, making sure they see their dentist at least once or twice a year, making sure they're doing good cleanings, the regular dental cleanings. And I need to know about potential extractions or any sort of surgeries beneath the gum line, because all of a sudden that risk now with an extraction, the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw goes up to 20%. So I actually do communicate closely with dentists. They're usually very on the ball with this and they actually have them sign off a release form stating that this patient is low risk to go on to these agents. And so we have a, a typical form that our patients bring to their dentists. It's the equivalent of cardiac clearance for surgery. I've just had Clearance for, for these Note I didn't use the term clearance because yeah. again, as an internist, as an internist, we don't clear people, we just right. give risk stratification. So that's that's what I give right. to the dentist. We do you need as a urologist, you need to be aware of this. I mean, weird things like ill-fitting dentures can be a disaster for these yes. patients. Anything so with need, increased pressure. Yeah. Yeah. You need to pay attention to it. It's valuable. So I think it's an important point. I appreciate your your highlighting that. So why don't we kind of come to some summary statements and 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 you know kind of take home messages um, that we want to we want to emphasize and leave our, our our listeners with. So, Dr. Loeb, you know, as the recommendations for genetic testing evolve, and we we still continue to hear from urologists that they have trouble communicating, um, you know, the role of testing to patients. Um, what do we advise in terms of giving a simple and clear message to? those who are going to be now on the front lines talking to patients about the role of genetic testing and why they need to be doing it. Yeah. So I'm Stephen, do you want me to try and take that one? Yeah, maybe He's what we'll do is um, actually, so, 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 Dr. Kavanaugh, maybe what we'll do is we'll give Dr. Loeb a second about the connection. But, but what I was going to kind of ask you about is, is the issue about financial toxicity. Um, you know, it was something that was hinted at by both yourself and Dr. Yu previously. But as more agents come about uh, to the point of these patients living longer, um, you know, how do you see? The concept, which is very real and 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 impactful for patients, of um, financial toxicity uh, impacting sequencing of therapies and decisions for therapies. I mean, I used to take great pride in not knowing what a patient's insurance was because I took care of everybody the same, and I don't think we have that luxury anymore. And it's not because you know we want to get the high the highest yield; it's because we don't want to make sure that we don't bankrupt our patients. I mean, about my understanding is about 50% of bankruptcies in the United States now involve medicine. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to understand which uh, drugs are covered by which uh, treatment, uh, excuse me, by which insurance. Uh, I think you need to help the patient find uh, cheaper ways to buy uh, these drugs. Uh, and uh, I hate to say it, but I'll make decisions on the basis of how much it's actually going to cost the patient uh, and not sacrificing, uh, you know, uh, care, not putting them on bicalutamide as opposed to a second generation androgen, androgen uh, uh, receptor agonist, but or antagonist, excuse me, but choosing the one that they can afford. Got it. Very helpful. Um, Dr. Loeb, the role of genetic testing and how we communicate it clearly to our, our frontline providers to then communicate it to patients? Yes, thank you so much. And sorry for the technical issues. And and uh, thanks to Dr. Keibel for bringing up the financial toxicity, because that is just so important. And I think we really do need to focus more on that. But yes, genetic testing, I mean, not only can it really have a big impact on management for prostate cancer, but also screening for other cancers and for family members. So at any stage of the disease, but there are risks too. So I think, you know, if you feel comfortable going through the GINA laws and the full informed decision-making with patients, then that's great. If not, working closely with the genetic counselor uh, is really critical. 
And Doctor, you here for our, our final word in the last sort of 40 seconds that we have. Um, thinking about patient comorbidities in all of this, we've talked about the treatment issue, the, the, the medic me mechanisms, treatment history. How about comorbidity status? Yeah, it's an incredibly important thing. I mean, obviously, I tell my patients, quality of life is just as important as quantity of life. So I'm very clear in going through all their comorbidities and going through all the side effects of each treatment and counseling them. And, you know, we make joint patient physician decision making. It's not just me telling them what the right thing to do is. We have to consider it. Sometimes people make choices that might not offer them the best survival benefit, but their quality of life issues. And I totally respect that. And I think that's important. Well, critically important topics and, and, a, and a great summary from, from, from all three of you. So, so Dr. Skybo Loeb and you, I want to thank you again for your time, uh, your input, and for a, a, a lively discussion here this afternoon. Thanks again. Take care. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.